Swift Unwrapped. Before we get started today, uh, we have a sponsor, AWS Amplify. AWS Amplify is a suite of tools and services that enables you to build full stack, serverless, and cloud-based mobile apps. Amplify gives iOS developers tools to build real-world, full stack apps using their existing skill set. There's no need to have deep knowledge around background, uh, around backend, DevOps, and scalable infrastructure. Amplify handles that for you. Amplify is available free of charge. You only pay for the backend services your application uses uh, above the free tier. Uh, you can check it out at awsamplify.info slash iOS. Thanks, Amplify. Today, we have a really special guest on the show. We have Jordan Rose, and we'll be talking about uh, some Swift runtime blog posts that he's recently been publishing and uh, some, some other Swift-related things. You may know Jordan, he's been a longtime Mac developer at Belkadan Software, and he's worked on Swift at Apple for six years. Uh, so you've probably interacted with him if ever you've filed uh, Swift bugs or if you've used the Swift language, which if you haven't, I don't know why you're listening to this show. Jordan now works at Signal. Um, Jordan, would you like to say hello? Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I just recently joined Signal is actually last week, and uh, I'm excited to be there now. It's uh, a cause that I think is very important that we all deserve private and secure communication. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, glad to see that uh, your your talents are, are being applied uh, somewhere very important. Um, so, Jordan, one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you today is that you've been publishing a series of blog posts on the Swift runtime for the last, uh, I want to say, month and a half or so. Um, and it's been really interesting uh, seeing this sort of re-implementation of the Swift runtime in Swift itself and, and the way that you've been walking through um, the various building blocks of what makes a Swift runtime. What led you to want to write about this? There's actually a, a series of uh, events that led to this. Um, so one thing that the, the start of this whole project is something I've wanted to do for a while and that I sort of joked about when I was still at Apple with some of the other people there. And that was to get Swift running on the environment where I learned to program, which is classic Mac OS, like, you know, the one from the 90s, basically. <laughs> and that sounds like a ridiculous task to get modern stuff running on an old computer. There's a lot of people who do retro computing and they uh, get old programs to work again on new computers, or they get an old computer up and running and hooked up to the internet or whatever. But it turns out that I'm not even the first to do this sort of reverse thing of take a new program and get it running on an old computer. Um, there's a really cool example of somebody getting a C-sharp program that will run on, I think, Windows 95 using a fairly modern version of .NET, but stripped down to its basics. Um, there's a Rust program also for Windows 95 out there somewhere. 
And then, of course, there's the uh, competitions about how small of a file can really be a valid executable anyway. And that sort of stuff's not necessarily useful in any practical sense, but you do learn things from it. And I also just love the exploratory and competitive slash cooperative aspect of these kinds of projects. Yeah, I think I saw a repository, uh, Git repository, that someone had been compiling and adding to the fattest fat binary uh, ever to exist that could support something like uh, eight or nine different architectures going back um, a few decades uh, in a single binary. Um, so some some people really find that uh, like a fun hobby. So the project sort of came out of that and that is sort of less of a jump than you might think because I'm not going all the way back to the Apple II days or anything or even the first Macs. I was doing the ones that I learned to program on, which is PowerPC. And the PowerPC architecture is still out there in use by IBM in some places. And so I was able to use a lot of pieces that are already in place for, from IBM, uh, who makes PowerPC, uh, from the LVM project already being sort of uh, platform agnostic in a lot of ways. And I don't want to say the project was easy, but compared to what was to come next, it may have been the easy part, a bunch of plumbing to get the very simplest modern Swift program to run on classic Mac OS. And, and when you say simplest program, you don't mean something that can print Hello World, do you? I mean, I did start there, but no, in this case, what I'm talking about for complexity is it's going to figure very much in here. It's how much it depends on complex features supported in the runtime, the part of Swift that can't be compiled down to pure assembly code that just stands on its own. So anything that's in Swift that's acting like C code, I mean, it's important that that gets compiled correctly, but once you've done it, if you're just moving integers in and out of pointers, it's gonna be as standalone as the equivalent C code. Right, and at that point, you're leveraging uh, LLVM's support for um, supporting the, the PowerPC architecture more so than having to build something whole cloth yourself. Is that right? Exactly. And in fact, this kind of thing had been done before with people getting modern Mac OS to build programs for classic Mac OS by emulating the environment of the classic Mac C compiler and linker. And so the tools that somebody used for this emulation, uh, there's a developer named Kay Sherlock that has an MPW tool which is this emulator for the classic Macintosh programmers workshop environment, hence the name. And uh, another name that probably a lot of Apple developers will recognize, Steve Troughton Smith. He was using this tool to compile one of his own apps from the oldest, oldest Macs that were still supported all the way up to modern Macs. Um, and he had a little example project as well. And that example project is what became my proof of concept for the first Swift app on macOS. All right, was, and what app was that? Yeah, um, and that, that app was Bitpaint, which is a very simple 
black and white image editor, basically. You click and it toggles from white to black or black to white. Doesn't export, doesn't do anything but show, but it means you've got that GUI interaction code there and it's from that you move out to any other app. I see. So you're interacting with uh, the the platform APIs in order to uh, integrate with the the GUI framework from MPW. Um, you're also writing Swift code uh, that has to interface with those APIs. Um, what else uh, is this exercising? That's that is most of it. Um, the Swift compiler has to be able to read in the C APIs defined in MPW, but Swift already knows how to read in C APIs. The compiler has to emit code that will correctly call those C APIs, but LLVM already knows how to talk to PowerPC code. And the last piece here is that it has to do so with the correct calling convention, the way that the parameters and return value get passed on the stack or in registers or whatever. And there I got lucky again because the classic Mac OS calling convention is very close to the calling convention used by IBM's AIX operating system. And that is also something that's still supported, although the support in LLVM for that is very new. So basically, I had a bunch of lucky breaks in the initial part of this project, this proof of concept of calling the C APIs necessary to make a, they call it a toolbox app, toolbox being the framework that predated Coco. Yeah, you still see some remnants of that, I think, uh, even with modern APIs where you have audio toolbox uh, that's still very much a module that um, people use on on Apple platforms even today. Um, I don't know if the, the name bears any uh, relationship to, to this initial um, MPW toolbox. Yeah, I don't know for sure in that case. Uh, I'm sure that the name was inspired, but whether the APIs have a direct lineage, I'm not sure. Right. Um, and at this point, you still don't have a runtime, correct? Exactly. So I'd done all this work, but doing all this work to write a C app in Swift was good, was really cool, but didn't feel like I was making use of any of the things I loved about Swift. I mean, Swift has great Objective-C interop, but when you're dealing with C and everything, you still know that you're in a language that's limited to some basic data types and some pointers that you're shoving things through. And I thought, well, if I really want to have a Swift on classic Mac experience, then that means I should be able to take something that really is just Swift code written to be Swift code and not to, you know, conform to what the C code would have looked like and get that to work. And for that, if I was going to use real Swift code with real Swift features in it, I was going to need a runtime. Yeah, right. So so up until this point, essentially, um, is what you're working with similar to how Swift interoperates currently with, um, say, C and Objective-C? Like, uh, you're just sort of calling into these existing APIs through some really kind of ugly Swift code to call C, and uh, that's pretty much it. 
Yeah, pretty much. You need the standard library to be around or at least a cut down form of the standard library so that you can talk about basic types like int, unsafe right. pointer, things like that. But anything that required memory allocation, you know, like it, which is everything like class construction <laughs> or uh, anything that used protocols or generics, that was just off the table. Can't even write helpers. The only ones that I could rely on were the ones where when you compile it with optimizations on, all of that got lowered away. And that's a restriction. So you can use structs, uh, you can use tuples, uh, you can use pointers and pointer manipulation, but things like uh, uh, dictionaries and arrays and classes are off the table. Yep. Okay, um, what does that code end up looking like? Uh, how how much code are we talking about um, that's you know full of these unsafe pointer manipulations? Are we talking about um, thousands of lines of code to to go and build this bit painter app, or uh, what, what's it look like? No, it's still fairly minimal. I think of it as when you translate Objective C code to Swift code. When you do it a sort of line for line translation, you can do that. You can come up with Swift code that exactly mimics what you would do in Objective C. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, what I was doing is doing a line for line translation of C code, which is something you would not do as often in Swift because it doesn't exactly get better unless you add more abstractions than that. But you can do it if you want to. So this original thing is a I don't know, 100, 200 line C app that's relying on the toolbox APIs to do a lot of the heavy lifting. And it became a 100, 200 line Swift app that defined, I think, like one helper enum type and used uh, unsafe buffer pointer to wrap around a, a memory allocated through the C APIs. Beautiful. <laughs> right. Fun. Yeah, if if you had colleagues uh, reviewing your code here, do you do you think uh, they would have landed <laughs> it in the main branch? Yeah, this is uh this is not necessarily something that uh, it, it's definitely a well, it works, um, <laughs> but would anybody say this is the maintainable way to do it, the clean way to do it, the efficient way to do it, the safe way to do it? I don't think so. And that I think is what brings us to the, the main topic, which is to get to that next level, you need a runtime. You need um, helpers to be able to leverage more advanced features, quote unquote, advanced features of the Swift language. Mm -hmm. um, so where do you start building a runtime? Yeah. Um... So the Swift runtime is responsible for a number of different things. And fortunately, a bunch of those can be teased apart somewhat. So you can get a runtime that supports classes, but not generic classes. You can get a runtime that supports generic classes, but not generic structs. And so what it ended up being was I had a goal I set for myself, which was to get another one of my toy projects to run in the classic environment and to implement any features that I needed for that. And the way I started was to compile the code and then look at the, what the linker spit out of everything that was missing. 
Do runtimes for programming languages typically all include the same sorts of functionality? I, I, I realize it probably depends on the, um, the features of that particular language, but is there sort of a general set of all runtimes do X, Y, Z? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I'd say a lot of it does depend on the features of the language, but a lot of it also does depend on how the language gets implemented. So it would be possible for Swift to say, a slightly different version of Swift to say, whenever you call a generic function, the compiler will copy-paste that function and substitute the arguments in. We usually like to talk about that when we explain it to people, but the compiler is only going to do that if it thinks it's a valuable optimization. But there are other languages, most commonly seen in uh, C++ and Rust, where that is how generics work. And if the compiler is going to substitute concrete types all the way through, then mm -hmm. it doesn't need any runtime support to implement generics. There's no extra indirection going on to make sure that this will work with future types. I see. So a lot of what the Swift runtime needs is constrained by the idea that one, you should be able to compile a library separately from its clients without revealing all the implementation details. And two, a lot of the stuff that other languages expose as part of their semantics in Swift is just considered an optimization. So this copy-pasting thing, this uh, if you call a method on a protocol but you know what type it is, that's an optimization to call the implementation directly. Um, if you have a class and you don't actually use it anywhere but in a function, it'll get allocated on the stack. In other languages, there's a solid distinction between stack memory that's cleaned up at the end of the function or sooner and heap memory, which you manage yourself. And in Swift, we've said sort of abstractly, everything is on the heap unless the compiler can prove that it doesn't get accessed except from within the function and then it gets put on the stack. Interesting. Yeah, and a lot of times when, when that works, it just works and it's beautiful and uh, most Swift developers never have to worry about it. Um, and occasionally uh, you do have to, either there'll be a difference between um, debug and full optimizations and your program will behave in slightly different ways. And of, of course, I think over the years, the Swift team has squashed a lot of those um, areas where, where there were slight differences, but uh, occasionally that has proven to be surprising when, when you just try to push the language a little bit. Absolutely. It does make it harder to reason about performance today. Um, it makes it possible that you get these behavioral differences sometimes. And you get languages that go in the opposite direction. Languages like Java or the .NET languages are even more so. We're going to run this whole thing in a VM. There are sometimes optimizations. Those optimizations may not even be chosen until runtime. And Swift is in the middle of these two extremes. And there's a handful of reasons for that, some of them sort of technical and some of them more historical about how Apple ships libraries and how they'd like people to continue shipping libraries in the future. 
But all of this is to say, if I wanted to do something more idiomatic swift using generics and proper collection types, I needed to actually do some runtime implementation. Yeah, so where does one even begin um, if you have to implement a runtime? So the order that I'm going through the blog posts is not exactly the order that I implemented things in, but it's close because it's starting with the sort of most digestible features, when, you know, you, where you're not biting off more than you can chew. Implementing that, and then you can then write a little dummy application that just tests that one feature and make sure it works. Maybe I can now create a struct that's generic, but if I try to call a method, I still have problems, something like that. And you just get one step further each time with a goal in mind that eventually it's going to run this existing code that has its own tests and it should pass and all that. And so the blog posts start out with heap objects, which is the representation of a class instance, but also closures that can't be optimized away. And that's just a very simple, we allocate some memory, we put a reference count in it, and then we free the memory when the reference count goes back to zero. Right, and this is an area where in the real uh, Swift runtime, there's intense optimizations to make this, um, to have several fast paths and try to make sure that this is always as efficient as possible and that um, I'm assuming really complicates it. Uh, but if you're just building um, a, a basic runtime where you don't necessarily care as much about the performance, then you can keep it simple. Exactly. And that's one of the things I love about this sort of exploratory small version of a real thing project. I don't need to care 100% about performance. I couldn't tank my performance because I was running <laughs> classic Mac OS in an emulator for some of it. Uh, but I didn't need it to be the fastest thing on the planet. I didn't need to support weak or unowned, which is a huge part of what makes the real reference counting complicated. Um, the real reference counting will try to save you if you uh, have an object try to revive itself during DNet. And I didn't bother with that. If, it, if that happens on my runtime, it'll blow up. We talk a lot about how error handling is super, super important. But toy projects like this are the place where you get to back off from that. And if you want to learn how something works by only looking at the happy path, go for it. This is the time to do it. That's great advice. Yeah, one thing you mentioned in the in your blog posts um, was about the tracking for unowned and weak uh, references. And uh, this is kind of a, a tangent, but I was curious why unowned references need to be tracked. I understand weak because they'll need to be nilled out, but for unowned references, what's the story there? Yeah, so this is a really interesting bit of real Swift history um, that came out of seeing what had happened with Objective-C and having to retrofit weak references into Objective-C. Mm. So um, there's probably a number of people to credit here, so I don't know if I'll get them all, but I know that Greg Parker and Dave Zarzitsky were among the people working on the Swift runtime in its earliest days, 
And I suspect that they were the ones coming up with the reference counting that Swift is using. So in Objective-C, reference counts are very heavily biased towards objects that only have a single owner and that don't have weak references. And when mm -hmm. a weak reference in Objective-C, when weak references came into Objective-C, they needed to do so in a way that didn't mess with everything else. And so what they do is that they're all registered with the runtime. The address of the weak reference is registered with the runtime so that when an object is destroyed and just before it's deallocated, the Objective-C runtime can go around and put nil in all those places. In Swift, we thought that that was unfortunate because it meant that you couldn't look at an object's dnit and know that that was all the memory that would get touched. And that sounds like a really narrow kind of thing, but it's actually really important for, uh, for certain kinds of performance optimizations to make sure that you can guarantee to the compiler that memory will not change during this operation. And so what they came up with for the real Swift runtime that I did not implement but in the real Swift runtime, you have their strong references that are stored within the object. And then you have a, an extra flag that says, I have weak references that basically changes the whole whatever's going on here. And now what happens is that when an object is destroyed, the weak references didn't point to that object originally they pointed to an extra little allocation. I might be getting some of the details wrong here, but the idea is correct. They point to an extra little allocation so that you can still reclaim all the memory for the object. But then when you access the weak reference, that's when it checks, is this still valid? And if so, it'll give you back the real object. And if not, that's when you get nil. So weak references in Swift are lazier and in some way I guess not safer. It's equivalently safe, um, but certainly lazier and probably less overall overhead than they are in Objective-C. And now we come to the original question, which is about unowned. Weak references in Swift do have a cost. They slow down the reference counting because they're dealing with this extra thing. But a lot of times, the only reason you're using weak is to break a cycle in your object graph, especially with model objects that represent, you know, a tree of something. Um, and you have a parent pointer. And so for unowned, we knew that we wanted to do better than what Objective-C calls unsafe unretained, where if you get it wrong, you're just accessing wild random memory and hopefully you have a dress sanitizer on to shout at you. So in Swift, if there are outstanding unowned references, then when it comes time to deinitialize an object, your deinitializer will run, but the object will not be deallocated yet. That address in memory is still reserved for the unowned, any pending unowned that needs to be resolved. And this is a different trade-off than with weak, where it was a separate bit of memory that was you know, a lot smaller, um, but also had more management. And the reason for that is because the whole point of unowned is that all the references have to go away 
You can't access it again once the object is gone, but now we've made it safe. If you access an unknown reference, you can see that the object is no longer there, but you also have the guarantee that nothing else has taken its place. And so in many cases, all of the unknown references will get you know, torn down and the, ref the unknown reference count will go to zero before you even get to the end of destroying all these things and it'll be fine. But if there happens to be one lingering on somewhere, then eventually that will go to zero as well. And that point is when the object gets deallocated. Oh, that's fascinating. I had no idea. The mechanism that you describe for uh, the weak, um, the the weak handling in particular, really reminds me of the way that a core data fault works, mm -hmm. where you sort of pretend that everything's fine up until the point where you go and access it. At which point you do the underlying work, either you proxy to the existing location, or then you'll go and um, clean up what you had and just return nil. Yeah, that's a great analogy. So for my runtime, I didn't implement any of that. Um, I just did the simplest possible kind of inline reference count, which is literally a number that is the number of outstanding references. I lied, it's biased. So that zero in that, that sort of default initial value you get of zero from a memory allocator, that means one reference. And so it's the number of references over one that actually gets counted. With that, you have enough to do strong references um, to pass objects around. It'll do retains, releases, and then when you get back to that zero and then release it one more time, that's when it knows to call the destructor. And that's also something that the runtime has to take care of, it turns out, because it's not just calling your dnit, it's also going to uh, deallocate the instance as well, in my case, unconditionally. So that's a good overview of uh, the memory management that you need to do for retaining, releasing. Um, but of course, there's a lot more than that that goes into a runtime. Um, you also have to understand uh, how to access um, members of a type, right? And that's where type layout comes in. So you want to give us a little overview of how much the runtime is responsible for understanding the layout of a type? Absolutely. Um, in a bunch of other languages, you wouldn't have this problem. And even in Swift, if you have a, a type that's completely, you know, full of types where you can see everything at compile time, all the layout's going to be decided at compile time. But if you have generics involved and those generics get filled in at runtime with types you don't know, or if you're dealing with types that come from one of Apple's libraries that have library evolution turned on, and they might have changed size since you compiled, then the runtime has to get involved. It has to be like, okay, you've got in here these two fields, first and second, and now, just now you're telling me that first is actually going to be an int, and second is going to be a bool. So great, we now get the chance to go into memory and decide what order to put those in at runtime. That makes the most sense. So how does that work? Right now, it's actually not very smart. 
what Swift is doing with type layout is it's going to go in order and put each bit of memory one after the other with one exception. And that's this thing called alignment. If you have an int, which is going to be eight bytes on uh, x86-64 or ARM64, and then a bool, that's just one byte because you can't store less than a byte. Then you're going to have the first eight bytes go to the int and then the one byte goes to the bool. But if you switch those around, you actually have a problem because the int has to get loaded all in one chunk, at least on certain platforms. And the way that that works is by guaranteeing that the address is a multiple of the alignment. So in this case, it's the entire int. So it is an alignment of eight bytes as well. And so if you start off with that bool as the very first thing, then you're not aligned to a multiple of eight. You're already one byte in. And so what the compiler and the runtime will do in that case is just insert seven bytes of padding and stick the int after that. That's sort of uh, unfortunate. And it's, um, uh, to, to give a little bit of a tangent, um, it's something that Swift has actually always reserved the right to change. It's not guaranteeing that this is going to be the layout algorithm it's doing. It would be a lot better if it could say, oh, you're saying that the first one's a bool and the second one's an int, but I'm just going to put those in the other order because now you're saving a lot of memory when you do that. But for now, that is what it's doing in uh, Swift 5.3 in all cases, as far as I know. And it's important that this is actually something that the compiler and runtime agree on because one person might be working with this pair struct in a completely generic way. Maybe they are just gonna print the first member of whatever the generic pair is and they don't care what it is, it's completely generic. And the other side, the, the person who's gonna call that function to do the printing, they know that it's a pair of an int and a bool and it would be a waste for them to ask the runtime how to lay out that pair if they can already see in the compiler that it's an int and a bool. So you get this thing where the compiler and the runtime have to agree how to lay out types, or the compiler has to prove that the runtime will never see it, or the, that, it, that it will never have information itself, and it's only the runtime's deal, whatever. Interesting. So is the main motivation for this type layout algorithm, the doing it in order, um, just the simplicity of it? Pretty much. It happens to be the layout that's used for C and C++ on most platforms, but that's also not a guarantee. The place that really defines these things is part of each platform's C ABI, application binary interface, um, you hear about the Swift ABI and ABI stability. So it has the same deal. If you pass a struct on an Apple platform with library evolution enabled through a public API, that means that, you know, the Swift project has promised that it will have a certain layout. It will have this layout algorithm. That's what it means to have a stable ABI. But if that struct is coming from a you know, it's only a visible inside your module. Well, 
it doesn't matter what what happens there unless people are trying to poke at the layout of the struct manually. And so for places where somebody might want to control the layout of a struct, maybe because uh, they're going to do a memory dump of some data into a file for some reason, that's something that Swift doesn't officially give you right now. But the current algorithm is there because it's easy to implement, it's correct, it's not terrible, um, and it's something you can currently like tweak uh, by checking the alignment of your types if you see that something's not performing well. So if this changed in the future, at least for the public API case, then that would be an ABI breaking change. Yes, although the project could be careful to only change it in places where you know there can be nobody relying on this. I won't go into detail on that, but... So my blog post talks about the compiler gives the runtime some information about fields and then asks the runtime to do this layout algorithm. And again, the runtime can't just decide to do something else because the compiler might be expecting it to do a certain algorithm. And that's uh, a fairly straightforward thing that uh, ends up going through a lot of uh, various helpers to do this rounding up to the alignment so that you're always at a multiple of the alignment when you put in the next field. And then all that information has to get stored somewhere as well so that when somebody does say, I want to print I guess not the first field that's always going to be at offset zero, but I want to print the second field that they can get the second field without having to refigure out, oh, okay, where's the second field again? Every time. So that's like a high-level summary of the first two posts that I did. First, what it takes to make a heap object and do some basic memory management, and then what it takes to uh, go from a list of fields in a tuple or a struct into actually how that's going to get laid out in memory. And there's a bunch more already on going past that. There's uh, type metadata, which is how the runtime is going to represent all the information about a type. And that's important for a generic type where you want a representation of not just array, but array of int and all that. Um, then how we can uh, make sure that this reference to an array of int is unique and that when we ask for array of int, we get the same type every time. What's different about classes versus structs? And then the post that just went up uh, when we were on the day we recorded this session, I guess now you know when we recorded this session, um, about how that class metadata gets filled in um, with information from the superclasses. And all of that is, uh, I think I've, I've tried to make it so that you can read this as long as you understand Swift. And that was sort of one of the goals of um, the original project for me is that I wanted to implement all of this in a language that, uh, that I enjoy coding in, which is I enjoy coding in Swift more than C++. Um, C++ has a lot of things going for it, but I really just like the, the tools that Swift gives you for the, the balance between safety and expressiveness uh, without sacrificing the performance. And I sound like an ad now. I'm not, I'm not even working on Swift full-time anymore, but it's, it's, uh, it's still there. And then there's still, uh, I'd say we're about a little more than halfway through this blog series. So there's a bunch of posts still to come.
Oh, wow. I didn't realize that so many more were coming. That's awesome. Uh, I've, I've definitely found them, um, you know, easy to follow in terms of, uh, you know, being able to read the actual code. I think sometimes the content is pretty dense, pretty hard to wrap your head around. Um, I was speaking to someone who doesn't have a ton of uh, compiler experience, um, but I think it's much easier to grasp uh, than having to parse a bunch of C++ code or, or something else that I'm not as familiar or comfortable with. Yeah, no, Jordan, you, you do a good job of distilling um, the, the essence of what is a pretty complicated topic in uh, in a digestible form, um, and I haven't had a chance to to read the last article that came out uh, today, the class metadata initialization. Um, but uh, I I just read the first part of it uh, right before we started recording, and I do like that there's uh, a Swift init class metadata two uh, <laughs> function mm-hmm. name, um, which uh, immediately makes me ask myself, will I understand this one if I haven't seen the original? <laughs> yeah, this is a this is one of the things that happens when you are trying to be stable and backwards compatible is you always try to get the right thing first and then later on you find out that some of the things you thought were the right thing were not um, so pro tip for anybody defining a some sort of data format always always include a version number I'm looking forward to Swift in a class metadata final I'd like to take a short break and thank Instabug for sponsoring this episode. Instabug provides application performance monitoring built for mobile apps. Uh, If you've seen or heard of Instabug with their bug and crash reporting SDK, they just launched a new application performance monitoring tool. Uh, You can get a window into what your users are really experiencing before they get a chance to complain, which is always when you want to catch issues before your users. You can find performance metrics on crashes, slow screen transitions, client-side network latency, or UI hangs all in one place. You can utilize performance patterns to narrow down your investigations and figure out what your critical issues are. You can always look at their dashboard and find the right balance between performance improvements and new features and always aim to build the best version of your app. You can get started and join top mobile teams like Verizon, Venti, and Lyft relying on Instabug for app quality. You can check them out at try.instabug.com slash swiftunwrapped. So Jordan, after uh, implementing all of this, um, what are your sort of overall thoughts on uh, how it was to write a Swift runtime in Swift? Um, what was um, what was easy? What was difficult? Uh, were there any C++ features you found yourself uh, wishing you had? Um, yeah, how was it? Yeah, I already said that it was uh, more comfortable for sure. Um, and part of that came from, I think, the, uh, the, the aspect of I didn't use an IDE to do most of this because I suppose because I didn't bother to get it set up correctly. But eventually this was something I was cross compiling and it's mm-hmm. always harder to get an IDE that doesn't understand a particular cross compile to do something good with it. So 
with C++, with Swift too, but with C++ especially, I really rely on autocomplete and, and placeholders and things. And I love those features when I'm doing my own regular programming. But I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get that set up in any way for this. So the very first thing benefit I got was, oh, I'm doing this in Swift. I don't need to rely quite as much on some of the circumlocution that C++ forces me to do. I can put methods on structs that I don't own with extensions. I love extensions. Uh, I can abstract things out into a protocol, although for the most part, I didn't do that for this project because I wanted it to get optimized away. Um, and then, of course, there's the great part that uh, when I needed some some standard library types, then I could just rely on Core Foundation, which is actually present on macOS 9. It was the bridge between macOS 9's toolbox ABIs, uh, which got wrapped up into the framework, in the infamous framework Carbon, and the Cocoa APIs that eventually took over everywhere. And so with Swift, I got that basically for free because Swift has that built-in recognizing core foundation pattern and doing reference counting, making sure my memory management is set and all of that. Yeah, I found that interesting in the blog post. I didn't know that little bit of history about um, core foundation and, and its origins. Um, but one thing you just mentioned um, that has me wondering is uh, what what exactly was your programming environment for this? So you mentioned you didn't use an IDE, um, but what in what context were you actually writing all of this code? Um, yeah, so my text editor of choice for something that really is just text editing, but a little bit smart is TextMate. It's got that balance of being a GUI app that's integrated with Mac OS, but still very extensible and, and very lightweight and able to handle a lot of different things. And there's a lot of great editors out there, but I just really appreciate the, the fact that it still feels like a Mac app. It feels like the rest of the system. And that makes a big difference for me. Um, and then for a build system for this, uh, it was always going to be this arcane command that was first a Swift comp compilation that had to use a weird target triple, and then an invocation to this MPW emulator to do any sort of linking and, and then running. So uh, I, I confess that it is a makefile. <laughs> There's a makefile that has a handful of different targets, and they record things. There's no incremental compilation going on here because I didn't need it. The runtime is honestly not that big a part of a Swift program. So my uh, workflow here was to change things in TextMate and then do a quick make to see if it compiles to get to get errors back, um, possibly using my uh, freeware tool HermitCrab available from Belkadan Software, lets you run shell commands very quickly. And uh, that was sufficient for the runtime and for the main um, the, the, the apps that I built on top of this thing. What I did sort of step away from that with um, was two different places. One, my original, uh, the original programs that I was porting after Bitpaint 
was something that I'd already written in native Swift that ran locally on my modern Mac. So I could run tests, I could add, you know, print statements about how something was behaving on a modern Mac for comparison and all of that. And I definitely, if I were only able to develop with cross compilation here, I would have done a lot more effort on a testing infrastructure. Also, if I uh, were going to ship this for any real reason and it had to be correct. Um, and then the other part that was a huge pain point at first was debugging because classic Mac OS, the whole way that the, the system is set up, um, you can't have one process inspecting another one in that way, or at least not with any of the tools I have access to in 2020. Um, I was not sufficiently expert of a Mac OS 9 programmer in the 90s to know what I should have been doing with that. And so the first part of the project before the runtime, all of that was printf debugging, which was exciting. Uh, but that wasn't sufficient once I got to the point of having a runtime and some really awful subtle bugs. And so for that, the rest of the setup was the emulator that I talked about before. Um, but instead of just running Mac OS 9, I had an emulator running Mac OS 10 uh, Tiger so that I could run GDB inside an emulator uh, to give me backtraces to do manual inspection of like, what is this memory pointing to? And that was still a pain. And there's probably more that could have gotten set up as a supporter around this, but that was a huge, without that, I would not have been able to, uh, to, to really complete the runtime in the way that I was hoping. You have so many different layers of, uh, virtualization <laughs> here involved that I can, I'm just picturing you with oven mitts using like barbecue tongs, touching your keyboard to just add more layers to this. I think I have, um, three or four virtualization platforms installed on this machine now and uh, a number of guests. It's, it's, uh, a, it's sort of uh, what, what comes up when you both only have one personal machine and want to run other things and also, uh, and, and, and want to, but at the same time want to release freeware and then also have this interest in retro computing and such. Uh, you mentioned something where the Swift compiler has integrated knowledge of core foundation. Now, I would have expected that to be in the runtime. I'm not sure why. Um, so that surprised me a little bit to hear that because we're not talking about sort of the Clang importer side of things um, that uh, they can ingest um, things like C or Objective-C headers, but we're actually talking about how um, retain and release uh, are different when you're using core foundation types. Is, is that right? That's true as well. And that's a place where I, I think I've actually glossed over it a little bit in the blog posts. Um, on modern Mac OS and iOS, a core foundation object is just an Objective-C object. Um, every single core foundation type will respond to uh, the you know object get class and obviously message send, although there's not much you can safely send to them because you don't know what the underlying messages are, um, except for the ones that are bridged. And so on Linux, the way that this works is that all of the core foundation types, instead of being actually Objective-C classes, they are 
actually Swift compatible heap objects. They have the same inline reference count field, and they do have a a, a field for a, a class is a pointer. And my runtime is closer to that in that everything is going to go through Swift retain. There's no decision between is this guaranteed a Swift type or an Objective-C type. And that happens because my the compiler basically thinks that my Swift on Classic project is a really weird Linux kind of thing. It's a non-Objective-C platform. And so to make that part work, I had to have a way where Swift retain could look at an object and say, is this actually a Swift object? And fortunately, there's enough ways in which the memory contents of core foundation types and Objective-C types, native Objective-C types on Mac OS X Tiger and native Swift types all look a little bit different. And so my version of Swift Retain does try to distinguish those. You're right, that is a runtime feature. But the part that the compiler has to do is to say, oh, these types are core foundation types. Therefore, I should be emitting retain and release on them. So you don't have to manually call CF retain and CF release. That's great. Uh, it's great that you and the team had the foresight to go and support uh, <laughs> Mac OS 9 uh, at the compiler level when, when this was done. So there is one thing that C that I still needed C++ for in the runtime, and I haven't gotten to it in the blog post yet, but it's um, compile time constants, which I think Swift will get to the point of this compile time thing is guaranteed to be constant and not lazily initialized, but then also exposing a global that has a particular non-mangled name. There's no supported way to do that in Swift, and there's no supported way to do it with constant data. And it's ironic that you need that to be a proper Swift runtime. Yeah, and rolling your own uh, mangler demangler um, sounds like <laughs> the opposite of the the fun that's involved in this project. Definitely. Um, so, Jordan, this series has really been fun to read, and I look forward to to the rest of the articles. Um, but I want to take a few minutes of the show and just talk about other things. Um, than uh, than just this project in particular. Um, in talking before the show, you you mentioned um, that one of your favorite things about Swift is that it borrows and steals things from a lot of other languages. Um, so you want to touch on that? Yeah, I remember when Swift first came out, there were a lot of people both the the praisers and the detractors who said, oh, Swift is just like my favorite language, except that it has this other thing. And there's almost an XKCD about this of, of oversimplifying something you don't understand. But in this case, there's really a kernel of truth to it. There's a huge benefit for developing a practical language in not trying to make things up for the first time because chances are other people have already made things up and discovered what they wish they had done 
And so Swift's enums uh, came from a, a variety of languages. A lot of people referenced Haskell. I think Rust had them already at that point. Um, and uh, the, the Chris Latner liked to dig up the original paper for this language called Clue, which might have been the very first language to have these kind of type safe enums. And um, obviously, the, the retain counting stuff was something that Apple had already implemented in Objective-C, and automatic reference counting systems have been around for a long time um, with well-known uh, advantages and disadvantages. The, the, the syntax, there's not much original in Swift syntax. A lot of languages have methods and properties and computed properties and extensions. Um, the generics system is very close to what's in the ML language, which is uh, um, a little more on the academic side and also among people who are very strong on functional programming. Um, so there's just a whole lot of things here where it was, that's a good idea. We can make it work for us. People will like it as opposed to look at this brand new shiny thing that only Apple could have done. And, you know, that, that's one of Apple's favorite taglines. And a lot of times the truth to it on the, like the hardware side is only Apple can is currently able to do this level of integration on the Swift software side. It's, you know, nah, we put a bunch of features together. There's only a few things that are really unique to Swift. Of those things that are unique to Swift, what's more of your favorite? Uh, so probably, um, I want to give two here just to talk about a small one and a big one. Um, a small thing that is pretty unique to Swift is availability checking. It's now in Objective-C as well, but it was in Swift first. And uh, the person who's responsible for a lot of that, I don't know if Apple wants me to say this, but I will say it, um, is actually one of my former managers, Devin Coughlin, who sort of had this insight that you could do availability checking in the same way that you do type checking at compile time, basically syntactically, you know, there's no inference going on. Either you're within a checked availability context or you're not. And of course, there's details that are a little more complicated than that. But that's something that's I don't think I've seen anywhere else in, in quite the same way where it's doing, it's making a static guarantee about what's safe to call and making sure that you will never hit a null pointer from accessing something that's not available. And uh, if Apple were a different company, there might've been a paper about it, but that's not how Apple does things, so. <laughs> yeah, um, I agree that that's uh, one of my favorite Swift features as well, um, even though it's it's not necessarily what comes to mind when you think of Swift features. And having recently um, wrapped a library uh, for only accessing via DLopen and DLSim, uh, mm. That is something that I would love to have access to um, and, and something that I, I sorely miss is sort of knowing, well, is this safe to call or not? Yeah, and that really leads into the other, the, the big thing that I would talk about, which is that this is a language that was designed that it would eventually have support for the stable ABI, library evolution, 
I can change my implementation of my library. And if I do so safely, then it my clients don't need to be recompiled. And if you think about it, that's just fundamental to Apple because they've got this whole thing set up where when it's update day, they will drop a new iOS on your device and that should be enough. You should not have to re-download your apps from the store for that iOS. If you're a language like you know Java or, uh, or C Sharp, you get that because everything is going to be JIT compiled at runtime. You've got, you know, the compiled form is still bytecode, but can go through some additional processing. If you are C, then you have some basic guarantees, like, you know, you maybe you throw a few padding extra like unused things in your structs so that people know uh, that uh, this struct might get bigger in the future they start using those fields or you pass around everything through pointers because it's the only safe choice but swift is something that's really puts this all the way through the language you can add fields to structs you can change computed properties into stored properties and back again you can add new uh override new new subclasses um, you can add a class in the middle of a class hierarchy. And the only language that I think has that's been this strong at doing this for something that's compiled ahead of time is probably Objective-C. And we weren't going to get shown up by Objective-C on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that really is fascinating. I think that is an underappreciated feature. Um, because I think maybe because it's so intuitive, we just expect it to work. You know, like you update iOS, all your apps still work. You don't have to re-download them. Um, but yeah, it's just fascinating how that how that works and all the work that goes into making that work. It absolutely has trade-offs too. Swift's model for what is safe to change is nearly everything, but there are still some things that aren't. For example, you can't add another argument to a method because even if it has a default parameter, old code, it would have been too much of a of an extra like safety check to say, do I have the right number of parameters? We wanted it to still be efficient to call methods without worrying about that step. So it's a fairly complicated thing. And there's a tool in the Swift repo for checking whether a certain set of changes is uh, going to break this binary compatibility. And it is the same tool that's used to check source compatibility. And uh, I hope that it gets uh, productized more into Xcode because source compatibility checks are good for everyone who's working on packages, even the people who don't need to release as binaries. But it is, uh, you know, one one uh, request among many, I know. Yeah, is that the module verifier? Uh, I don't remember what the 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 binary the executable name is yeah. called right now yeah um the what's always going to be hard um for for programmers to do is to not just think across space but to think about space and time and even with all of the uh powerful library evolution features that have been added um you really do need to to almost like sit down with a pen and paper and really draw out like the ways in which you want your library to to be able to evolve um accounting for for future uh improvements or, or changes um and uh and without 
really good tooling, it's very challenging to make sure that you're always um, doing the right thing and that you aren't introducing a mistake somewhere. Um, the the, the very similar pattern there in terms of thinking across space and time is when um, you're using some sort of persistence framework and you have to worry about migrations. All of the past data types that and, and data formats that you've ever potentially stored um, and the and, and now the, the newest version of your data model, what are all of the ways in which you can go from uh, zero to 10 to one to 10, two to 10, et cetera, uh, is also a really hard problem. So um, it's great that Swift has this really strong library evolution story. And I'm, I'm hoping that uh, just like you're saying, that a lot of the tooling and support around that can continue to grow over time as well. All right. Well, I think that is all the time we have for this episode. Um, it's been a super fascinating discussion. Uh, I've definitely learned a lot. Um, we'd like to thank our sponsors, uh, AWS Amplify. You can find them at awsamplify.info slash iOS and Instabug. Uh, you can find them at try.instabug.com slash Swift Unwrapped. Yeah, Jordan, where can people find you? So I'm on Twitter as uint underscore min. It's a C joke. And uh, my freeware apps, as well as my uh, pers personal programming blog, is belkadan.com, which I'm not going to spell for you. Just go to the Swift Unwrapped website and click on the link. And uh, especially these days, um, the other place that you might find me is volunteering with the with, uh, various groups, and in particular, I'll call out Citizens Climate Lobby, which is trying to make sure that we get a carbon tax to help fix climate change in the future and give money back to individual people. And finally, I'll give a shout out to my friend and colleague, Gwen Raskind, because if she hadn't poked me about it, there might not have been a blog series on the Swift Runtime. Well then, thank you, Gwen, for pushing Jordan to publish this. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter at Swift underscore Unwrapped. And if you enjoyed this episode, uh, let Jesse, Jordan, and I know, and please leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.